This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Why was a crusade that was initially meant for Syria end up in Tunis? How did the aspirations of the King of France and the Mamluk Sultan, the King of Sicily and the Hafsid Emir of Tunis get entangled in the years following the Mongol invasion of the Middle East? More broadly, how should we approach the Crusades, a series of events that have traditionally focused on either the European or the Near Eastern perspectives, and can these perspectives become integrated into a more holistic Mediterranean approach? In The Tunis Crusade of 1270, A Mediterranean History, Dr. Michael Lower, professor of history at the University of Minnesota, offers a broad and deep dive into the Tunis Crusade, an unlikely but impactful moment of Mediterranean history. In our conversation, Michael and I touch upon traditional and new methodological approaches to the Crusades, the important roles played by Mediterranean rulers and the political, religious, and economic pressures that shaped their decisions, and the reasons behind the strange detour the so-called Eighth Crusade, originally bound for Syria, took 1,500 miles to the west, to Tunis. I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Aaron Hagler from Troy University, and thank you for listening to the New Books in Middle Eastern Studies podcast. Now, to our topic. Welcome, Michael, to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, and thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I am really well. I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank you. I'm so I'm so glad you could join us. And today we are talking about your book published by Oxford University Press in 2018. It's called The Tunis Crusade of 1270. And let me start by saying that I just had fun reading it. I thought it was just plain fun to read. Um, but what appealed to me most about it was that you took this singular event, the Tunis Crusade of 1270, and, and as you point out, once upon a time, when we were numbering them, we called it the Eighth Crusade. Uh, and in addition to leading us into the weeds of this event, you kind of zoom back to a global perspective, and you place this crusade in the context of French and Mamluk and Crusader and Mongol politics and touching on economics and military and religion, ultimately giving the sense of the Crusades as a kind of a, a, a perfect result of a perfect storm of causes. But before we get into the book, I'd like to take the opportunity for both myself and our listeners to get to know you a little better. Uh, can you say something about your scholarly journey, uh, where you are today, and how you got here? Absolutely. So right now, I'm teaching at the University of Minnesota. And I've actually been here for a pretty long time, since about 2000, so I'm feeling very old, but <laughs> I come, I'm originally, I'm based in the U.S., but I'm actually originally from Canada, from Toronto, which I think is actually possibly significant to the story because it was a really diverse city. It still is a really mm -hmm. diverse city. It's known, Canadians th think of it as sort of the most multicultural city in the world. I don't know if that claim is actually true, but that's the way we think about it, which I think is. But kind Canadians of are always so nice that we're just going <laughs> to say it's in the running, at least. It's got to be up there somewhere, right? So I think actually that that diverse city that I grew up in had a big impact on the way that I approach scholarship, especially this medieval Mediterranean scholarship, weirdly enough. There's a kind of, 
idea of Canadian multiculturalism that is an important way of, to me at least, of thinking about the medieval Mediterranean. So the sort of propaganda that we would get as kids growing up in the 1970s was that, okay, the United States is something of a melting pot, but here we have this different model of multiculturalism where there's this respect for difference where different language traditions, different religions, and so forth could could coexist in a single space. And they wouldn't necessarily be blended. They wouldn't necessarily be elided. And let me I, just interject. Let me just interject yeah. and say that that sounds really nice. It's int- right. It's a kind <laughs> of well, it's an ideal. I mean, I think that's important to acknowledge that Canadians think of it often as this is our lived reality, whereas I think it was more like an ideal that we were shooting for. But but it was there. And I think mm-hmm. that that has always actually informed the way I think about this place that's really remote in time and space from Toronto in the 1970s, right, which is the medieval medieval Mediterranean. But I'm also struck by the number of people doing Mediterranean studies today who actually came out of that environment. Uh, people like Brian Katlos and, and Tom Berman and myself, we all we all actually grew up there around that time and place. So that's kind of When you say there, did you, do you mean that you grew up in, in Toronto or you grew up in Canada? Uh, Toronto. Wow. Yeah, specifically. Yeah. And yeah, you know, fountainhead, of, fountainhead of Mediterranean studies. Well, who knew, right? Yeah. It's, not, <laughs> it's a kind of an unlikely spot, especially when you're sitting there in January, freezing your, <laughs> freezing <laughs> to death. But, you know, there, there it is. Anyways, after, so I did my undergraduate degree at Toronto, which was really fantastic because we had this amazing medieval history program that got me going. And then I was able to go to Cambridge University in England. And that was another really important step because I got to work with David Abalafia, who is uh, something of a pioneer in the world of Mediterranean studies, for sure. When he was doing it back in the sort of late 1980s and early 1990s, it wasn't really at the, the center of where medieval European history was. He was writing these books about Mallorca and everyone was thinking, wow, Mallorca, what's up with that? And of course, he was really ahead of the curve as it turned, you know, why aren't you writing about England, right? Um, He was really ahead of the curve, I think. And he was the one who actually set me on the topic of the Tunis Crusade back, I'm embarrassed to say, but I'm going to say it anyways, back in 1993. So something like 25 years ago. He said, why don't you try this? It's a bit out of the way. And sort of stuck, had to stick with it for a long time to get to this story. So he Hmm. was a really important influence and pointing to a slightly different way of doing medieval history, I think, one that was more open to the, at least to the northern Mediterranean, and then getting a little bit into the southern Mediterranean as well. But after that, I actually went on and I worked with uh, Jonathan Riley Smith for a PhD thesis at Cambridge. And for those who may or may not know, Jonathan Riley Smith was kind of the leading crusades historian of his of his generation and Mm -hmm. he was so he was really formative for me as well he was really interested this takes it in a slightly different direction he was really interested in the crusades as a kind of european history what were the motivations of crusaders what can we take the ideas of the crusaders seriously what kind of piety did they express when they went on crusade? These are the questions that were really interesting to him. And that was tremendously important for me too. But eventually, I have to admit, I, I rebelled slightly because I became just a little bit frustrated about the, about the one-sidedness of the discussion. 
mm-hmm. that we were focusing so much on the the European motivations, the European context that we somewhat lost the sense of the Crusades as a you know as a multilateral phenomenon, right? As a many-sided phenomenon involving lots of different actors and lots of different parties. And that's what really got me interested in thinking about the at least the Crusades in a new way was this idea of can we capture the many sides of the Crusades, not just the Europe, not just the European side. And I have and, to, admit, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Go, no, please go ahead. Well, I have to admit that Minnesota, and so I came to Minnesota in 2000, and you know, I had maybe the first time I taught the Crusades, I had maybe 30, 35 people in the class, and then the next year, in the fall, of course, was 9/11, and then mm-hmm. the following spring, I had 60 people in the class, and then seven, you know, 70, 80, 90, and there was this huge revival of interest in the history of the Crusades following 9-11, of course. And I think it was teaching the Crusades and people, students were tremendously interested, not just in the European perspective on the Crusades, of course, but on the Crusades as a kind of early intercultural encounter. And how did that work? And you need both sides to, to tell that story. So that, and really, I, yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think the the book does a wonderful job of that. You no, know, it makes me think. I, I love that the teaching played into it because it, I, I always felt like there was nothing that sharpened the mind more uh, on a particular topic than needing to teach it and not look like an idiot in front of a room full of students. Oh, it's so true. You <laughs> and students, I think, kind of inherently understood right that the Crusades had to be sort of multi perspectival right, in order to make sense of them. There are all these different actors doing all these different things, and they wanted to know. They wanted to know the other side of the story. What was the Islamic perspective on the on the Crusades? How did that work? And that kind of teaching question really fed back into my research as well. But the problem was that I was trained as a Europeanist. That was, I received Crusades historians when I was coming up way back in, in ancient times, that was what you did. You studied European history, you studied medieval European history. So you learned Latin, learned French, you learned German, you learned the techniques of Latin paleography, how to read these old archival records and, and manuscripts. And that's sort of what you did. Mm-hmm. So that didn't really leave me particularly well equipped to develop a story about the Crusades that involved many, many sides. So that was... I actually reached kind of an impasse, I think, after I published my first book in around 2006. I realized, you know, the kind of questions that I want to ask about the Crusades, I can't really answer with the training that I've got. So I really started to look around for, can I do something different? And and specifically, can I learn some more about Near Eastern history? Can I try to study some Arabic and some classical Arabic in particular. But of course, as a practical matter, this was this was very difficult. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was really lucky when I heard about this grant program that the Mellon Foundation was running called the called the New Directions Fellowship, where it's, it's just this incredible thing where they basically give you a year to go and study something different, right? Something that's not in your discipline, something that you didn't get in your graduate training. And so for me, that was Arabic and Near Eastern Studies. And I got to go to the University of Chicago and study classical Arabic. I got a year. Five years would have been better. 
And <laughs> 15 years would be better. <laughs> 15 years would be better. That's kind of the way those PhDs work at the University of Chicago, right? People go in oh, there and then they kind of emerge from a from a dark room sort of 15 years later. But boy, do they know their stuff. It's incredible. And but I, I was lucky. I got to work with with Fred Donner, right? Mm-hmm. Who I, and so I, I think Fred Donner is sort of your academic grandfather. If yes, yes, if he is. My, my Dr. Vater is Dr. Vater. Yes, I'm get, if I'm getting my genealogy straight, because you worked with Paul Cobb, and then Paul Cobb worked with Fred Donner. So yes. he's an amazing scholar of early Islam, at the, as many of, the, of your listeners will know, at the University of Chicago. And so that was a class on Islamic origins with him was truly, truly stunning. Wow, and I think, that's awesome. Oh, it was. It was so special. And of course, it's been amazing to watch the field develop because the way it works is that a lot of the students, just these young guns sitting around the table when I was there, have gone on to become serious figures in the field themselves, right? Because of partly, you know, their own amazingness, but also Fred's incredible skills as a mentor and advisor as well. So that was really important for me, I have to say. The most incredible thing about this scholarly adventure, this move, moving haltingly into, into Near Eastern studies is just the amazing welcome I've received from people in the field. People like Fred and, and Paul Cobb, of course, and Ramsey Ruigi, who's a specialist in North Africa over in um, USC in California. People were just so incredibly welcoming. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Oh, yeah. And that's just made a huge difference, I think, in just giving me some encouragement to to carry on. The other thing that was really striking, and I don't know what you think about this, but my strong sense from studying at Chicago for a year was that the, the disciplinary divide between European history and the kind of training that you do and the questions that you ask and Near Eastern studies, at least as it was configured back when I was doing it at the University of Chicago in 2010, 2011, there was a real difference between those two approaches. And it wasn't just a difference in terms of category A, you learn these languages, and in category B, you learn those languages. It felt like the questions were, were different. It felt like the, the influence of um, the, the traditional philological approach in, in Near Eastern studies was still sort of very real and very profound. Do you get a sense of these strong differences? I do. Um, I have to say I'm not very well versed in European scholarship, but I do know that when I've read European books on the Crusades uh, versus Near Eastern books on the Crusades, there's a different feel. There are different assumptions, different kinds of questions that get asked. Yeah, I completely – I was really struck by it, and I thought that was really – interesting and important, actually. It wasn't something for me, these differences between fields and disciplines are not something that we should strive necessarily to elide or obliterate, but they're actually something to be respected and engaged with. So that was one of the most exciting aspects of moving moving into this new domain as well. So yeah, so that takes me more or less to the present day. And then a lot of, and then that, all that sort of work and rethinking, i took back into trying to trying to really have a redo on the Tunis Crusade, having done some work on it as an MPhil thesis back in 1993, and then kind of going back to it with, with some new training and some new questions. 
Well, I think that's a, a great place to segue into the book. Um, I was going to ask you what motivated you to write a book on the Tunis Crusade specifically, kind of ask the same question you asked yeah. right at the beginning. Why Tunis? Yeah. Um, but yeah. now we have a sense it, it started early. Um, so let me ask you this. Your book is subtitled A Mediterranean History. And as you've described, it's very much in keeping with your approach. It's uh, very much in line with the at last apparently understood notion uh, that the Crusades were not simply a set of Christian versus Muslim brawls. Right. Uh, you place the responsibility for this long time confusion about the Crusades, at least at least partially, at the door of what you call, and I love this phrase, a feat of academic gerrymandering, which you just described, right? You split the Mediterranean in two, mm -hmm. uh, above, north of it is one and south of it is the other. Uh, and placed what should be a unified history, albeit with sources in many languages, into right. these two fields, European and Near Eastern. So on that topic, what do you think has been lost by this division? And what do you think we stand to gain by um, reintegrating those two fields? Yes, I I do think that that a great deal has been lost. And it's really kind of just fundamental historical investigation. You, you can't tell a story or you can't understand a story when you only listen to one party, right? I mean, I always do this with students at silly. I say, well, okay, so you talk to a divorced couple. If you only spoke to the husband, like, would you get the full story of why the marriage fell apart? You probably wouldn't, right? You really need to talk to everyone who is involved. It's really that simple, I think, mm -hmm. that you need to approach things from multiple perspectives. But the challenge is that there's so much technical and methodological impediment that stands in the way of that basic move. It's so difficult as a practical matter for scholars to try to assemble the various languages that they need to, to study the Crusades in full. And then I think that some of these methodological differences are also very real and can be challenging to challenging to work with as well. So it's a particular problem, you're right, with the Tunis Crusade, right? This idea of academic gerrymandering that we have some topics that kind of fall into this department and the people over here do it and then other topics, it's the people over there who do it and they can't necessarily come come together, but some history doesn't necessarily some history just doesn't conform, right? In North Africa is particularly problematic. North mm -hmm. Africa, where do you put it? It's always been a problem. We North Africa gets talked about in as it's Middle Eastern history. Mm -hmm. Okay. On the face of it, that doesn't make a lick of sense. It's not it's not in the Middle East. It's not really East. It was called the Maghreb, right? Mm -hmm. I.e. the West. The West. So <laughs> <laughs> what what are we doing? confining North Africa to Middle Eastern history and then keeping it separate from a history that was going going along very, very close. You know, at their narrowest, right, the Sicilian, the Sicilian Straits, the divide between Tunis on the one side and Sicily on the other, it's a very narrow body, body of water between the two between the two parts, right? Um, mm -hmm. it, it seems almost perverse to try to to try to divide them. So it's a topic uh, because of the geography, because of the history, because of the people who were involved that has that really does sit somewhat awkwardly across two established fields, European history, mm -hmm. Near Eastern studies, Islamic studies. And, and thus it gets kind of uh, relegated to just a simplistic civilizational 
you know, drag out fight without yeah. any kind of nuance. Yeah, absolutely. And the that's the the question that really got interesting for me as I as I worked on this, which is to say what what would happen if as a kind of thought experiment we were going to try to put the crusades into this Mediterranean context rather than say an exclusively European context or um, conversely an exclusively Islamic frame because of mm-hmm. course that can be done too right and it's tremendously important so if we think about how the field has developed we've had maybe 9,011 books that have talked about the history of the Crusades from a European perspective mm-hmm. and then in response to that, completely justified and so so badly needed, we had two books. Carol Hill and Brand wrote one, and then mm-hmm. Paul Cobb wrote another, of course, the race for the race for paradise, that very deliberately set out to look at the Crusades from an Islamic perspective, from the point of view of, you know, Paul has that wonderful expression that I'm sure you've heard of getting crusaded. What yes, was that's the, the name of uh, that's actually the name of one of his classes at Penn. Absolutely, and it's and it's fantastic, right? What was it like to be on the receiving end of a crusade? This fantastic question, and Paul wrote this really beautiful book, uh, going through that, sort of answering that question on a larger, on a larger kind of scale and frame. What I wanted to do was something that was actually slightly different, kind of building on what Carol had done and building on what Paul had done, which was could I come up with something that was more panoramic? In other words, could I combine the multiple perspectives and what would happen when I put them together? Now, to do that, obviously, I think it required working, to my mind at least, it required working on a on a smaller temporal scale, you know, limiting the chronology, focusing on one event. Otherwise, it would just be so sweeping and so expansive that the the center would not hold and the whole project would collapse. So I wanted yeah, I mean, to do the, the, the book binding wouldn't hold on a project like that. Yeah, exactly. It's a kind of like total history of the Crusades, you know, or total history of intercultural encounter in the medieval Mediterranean, <laughs> which is great. Maybe that's the goal that we should all be shooting for down the down the road but I wanted to start with something that was much more circumscribed and see if I could see if I could do it. So that was the that was the challenge what what would happen if we think about the crusades from this more mediterranean perspective placing it in this slightly different context and how would that change what we thought about the crusades and how we understand them as this medieval phenomenon. To, to do that, there were a couple of schools of thought that I think needed to be confronted and needed to be, needed to be dealt with that have traditionally framed the way people have approached these things. So one is, of course, one frame, big governing frame here is Mediterranean studies, which goes back mm-hmm. to the work of Fernand Burdell in the 1940s, writing about the Mediterranean in the age of Philip II. And for scholars who consider themselves to be part of this school of thought, we have this idea that there's a a larger Mediterranean culture that was shaped by factors like climate and geography. 
and soil and agricultural techniques and all these really kind of rooted things, right? And that these factors created larger kinds of connectivity amongst all the diverse peoples of the Mediterranean, in spite of these religious differences that we might think should have divided them. So there were these sort of larger commonalities that they had. So that's one way that people have traditionally approached these questions through this lens of Mediterranean studies. The other, of course, is the, is the, the dreaded clash. It sounds very violent even in the title, but the, the clash of civilizations where mm-hmm. instead of seeing a lot of connectivity across religious divides, instead we have this idea that the religious divide mattered profoundly and more important still that it was a really crucial source of conflict amongst people who belong to different religions. So on the face of it, the two, these two frames, clash of civilizations, which is really associated with the work of people like Bernard Lewis and Samuel Huntington on the one hand and Mediterranean studies on the other, they, they seem on the face of it to be pretty far apart, right? In terms of how they, how they look at the world. One is going to emphasize the natural environment. The other is going to emphasize religious allegiance. But I think there's actually a common assumption that they share, which is that religious difference will inevitably lead to conflict. Once we start to highlight the religious difference between people, it's going to go in a dark direction. Hmm. And, and that's the idea that I wanted to to play with a little bit in the book. What if we could think of or imagine a, an alternate history of religious difference, uh, one that considered how religious difference might also have been a source of stability or provided a basis for relations amongst different different peoples in this quite profoundly pre, pre-secular age. So that was the kind of idea that I wanted to explore over the course of the, over the course of the book. And that's the sort of big reframing that I had in mind when I was thinking about how the story of the Tunis crusade could connect to this larger, larger question of how crusading fit into this Mediterranean world. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Okay. Well, let's let's talk for a moment about the Mediterranean world and kind of who was powerful. Um, yeah. The book, for, for all its perspective in terms of providing a kind of widescreen explanation for the Tunis Crusade, uh, and I, I promise we will get into talking about the Crusade itself soon, um, <laughs> but before we do, uh, you, you still focus on four very important individuals. Uh, one is King Louis IX of France. Uh, you talk about his younger brother, Charles of Anjou, who's uh, King of Sicily. Baibars, the Mamluk Sultan of Egypt and Syria, and Al-Mustansir, the Hafsidimir of Tunis. Um, can you talk about the relationship among these four men and how that relationship served to spur the crusade? That is what is so neat about the story. I think it was one of the things that, that kept me kept me going in, in pursuing it through the years, was that it's really a story 
There's all this sort of global context that matters, but it, it ultimately boils down to the story of four people. And I always imagined them as breaking up into two pairs. Uh, they're, they're all these ambitious Mediterranean dynasts, but one pair is more committed to conflict across religious lines. They want to fight across religious lines. And then the other pair is slightly, not to say that they don't fight, because of course there's a lot of fighting going on in the world of the <laughs> Crusades in the medieval Mediterranean. But the other pair is more committed, more interested in negotiation as a way of achieving their goals, accommodation as a way of achieving their goals. And the story of the crusade becomes the story of how the fates of these four men become intertwined in this particular moment in time. And it leads to this very strange story of how this crusade that was meant to go to the Holy Land, that was meant to save the crusader states of Syria from what's looked like almost certain destruction, how it ends up in this peaceful North African port city thousands of miles from the Holy Land. And that story comes out of the way these four people relate to each other and and get along. So you've got, maybe we should start with the the pair that's more committed to, to conflict, Louis and, and, and Baybars. Louis, Louis the Ninth of France, he's often known as Saint Louis, right? Saint, he's the only. There are not many major American cities named after crusaders, right? We have one here <laughs> with 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 Saint Louis, Saint Louis. He is this very famous king of the European Middle Ages. He's often thought of as a kind of defining figure of medieval history in a lot of ways. In in French history, there's really a defined period where people talk about the the age of San the age of San Louis, right? This 13th century world of cathedrals and universities and scholasticism and of course crusades, these defining features of medieval European history. Louis is so closely associated with with all of them and of course he's so venerated in his own era for his, especially for his commitment to crusading, that he is sainted. Uh, he is canonized after after his death. And this is obviously a pretty rare thing for a medieval king to become a saint. It's usually a line of work that doesn't lend itself, politics and all the rest, usually doesn't mm-hmm. lend itself to canonization, right? But he he manages this feat. And he's, of course, he's born into privilege, he's he's wealthy, sophisticated culture that he grows up in. Okay. On the other hand, you have Baybars, who at the beginning, at least, has, has none of these things, right? He's sort of the polar opposite at the start of his life. It's an amazing s- story. It boggles my mind even just thinking about it now. He's a Kipchap Turk. He's born mm-hmm. in the South Russian steppe. He's captured as a, as a boy. He's sold in a slave market in Syria to an Egyptian emir. The Egyptian emir becomes his maula, his master. And Baybars himself becomes a mamluk. And mamluks are these, you know, often the shorthand is slave soldier. But he's, right, he's purchased. And then he's trained 
from youth in military arts and especially in this one form of kind of mounted archery combat that we might get a chance to talk a little bit more as we go along. He's converted to Islam and then he becomes part of this elite guard for the Egyptian dynasty that he serves. But of course, the amazing thing about Baybars is that that's not the end of the story, right? He he manages this incredible transformation from slave boy to sultan so that we when we find ourselves in the 1260s, he's ready to go toe-to-toe with this great king of the medieval West, uh, Louis IX of France. And toe-to-toe is what they want. They, they mm-hmm. both are focused intensely on, on Western Asia. They both see massive benefits to themselves. It's, both, it's incredibly important to both of them that they fight over Western Asia. For Louis, Louis's got this backstory, right, leading up to the crusade. He's someone who's already gone on crusade once. He goes on crusade to Egypt, in fact, in the, the late 1240s and the early 1250s, and it is a complete and total disaster. He leads his army into captivity on the Nile River in the course of this ill-fated, ill-fated campaign. It could not have gone worse. And when he comes back from this crusade, he's filled with remorse, he's filled with regret, he's filled with the sense that somehow he has failed in a way that has caused, that that must have been caused by divine displeasure, right? He has done something to displease God profoundly because God has led him into this complete disaster in the Delta. And so the rest of his life becomes this search for redemption, And the redemption is going to culminate, of course, in a redo, a great do-over where he's going to go back to Syria, go back to the Holy Land. And this time he's going to get it right and he's going to save Jerusalem. He's going to save the Crusader states and he's going to fulfill his redemptive destiny as a king and and as a Christian. So he could not be more powerfully motivated to, to launch this crusade, right? And for Baybars, of course, his position is slightly different, but you have to imagine when Baybars, Baybars is this, as I say, slave boy turned sultan. He's someone who has seized power in Cairo. He's building this state that's going to become tremendously powerful. But in the 1260s, it's all pretty tenuous, right? He, he hasn't made it yet. And for him, legitimating his rule, justifying his rule there, the place of the jihad, the place of one of the reasons that I'm here is to wage war against the Christians is extremely important. And the, and his war in Syria becomes part of this broader kind of campaign of moral regeneration, right? Where he can establish his, his bona fides as the, the new ruler. So I love that they came Mamluk, from kind of Egypt. diametrically opposed uh, um origins and yet they have the same motivation with, for picking a fight with each other in yeah, Syria. Absolutely. They really they really want this conflict. But there's always a twist in the tail and what prevents this story from becoming the classic straightforward east-west or christian-muslim confrontation however you want to frame it is that they're 
there are these other people who become involved mm-hmm. in the in the story. And here we we sort of shift the focus from Western Asia or the Eastern Mediterranean into the Central Mediterranean and the world of Tunisia and the world of Sicily and Southern Italy as well. And here's where we have a slightly different dynamic operating. And the really neat thing about the story, right, is that one of the main actors here is the younger brother of Louis IX. So we have Louis, who's the head of this Capetian dynasty that rules France. And then we have his youngest brother, Charles, Charles of Anjou, as he's as he's known to history. This is a guy who it's incongruous, right? On the one hand, he's the son of a king. You think, well, that's a wonderful position to be in. But on the other hand, he's so far down the pecking order of siblings that he really originally at least doesn't stand to benefit very much from that. He's actually, mm-hmm. you know, people wonder, well, maybe he was actually pegged for the a career in the church originally. And it's only the death of an older brother that allows him to move up one rung in the ladder and gain uh, a lordship in France, and and then he he sort of takes his destiny in his own hands and builds out this career for himself. He would never be the king of France, but could he become a king in his own right? Could he rule somewhere somewhere else? And he's he's an interesting contrast to to Louis. He's a really Charles is a really austere guy. He was tall. He had this kind of famous long nose that became a trademark of the the Angevin dynasty that came that came after him. There's actually the brothers are not really close. There's a 13-year age gap between mm-hmm. Louis and and Charles and and Charles is known as a bit of a cold fish, right? Uh there are these stories about him that even in his youth he scarcely smiled. Louis was a someone who was famous for his piety, famous for his devotion, but he was also at least prior to the disaster of his first crusade, known as someone who could laugh, who would be actually fun to have dinner with. Charles was not that guy. Uh, okay. Not, not at all. But he, and he has this intense focus on his own destiny and his own ambitions. And he actually achieves an amazing result in 1266. So just a few years before this crusade, he, when he conquers Sicily, and becomes the king of Sicily. So here's this amazing thing. Sicily is beautifully positioned in the center of the Mediterranean, right? You Mm -hmm. can dream, if you rule Sicily, you can dream of a trans-Mediterranean empire. You can dream of going east into the world of Byzantium and Greek Orthodox Christianity. You can dream of conquest there. You can dream of going west to Sardinia and to the Balearic Islands and to Catalonia, right? You can really imagine yourself carving out something quite substantial. The problem is that Sicily itself is just a few miles north of this other place, Tunisia, which is causing Charles a fair amount of trouble in the immediate aftermath of his conquest of Sicily. And so here we have Amustansir, as you say, who is this really important figure in the history of medieval North Africa and the history especially of this this Hafsid dynasty that rules uh, what we would think of today as, you would think of it as almost like a greater Tunisia. Um, It's 
in the Middle Ages is known as Ifriqiya. Mm-hmm. And he, almost sincere, is not quite the self-made man that Babars is or even that Charles is. He's the second in line. So his father was the heroic founding figure of the dynasty. But Mustansir has this really heavy task as well, which is that he has to ensure the survival and potentially the expansion of this dynasty. And this is a really difficult challenge in this world. North African politics. So I always gravitate to these stories where the politics are really convoluted and complicated. And I can see why I ended up on North Africa because they kind of win the prize for, you know, (laughs) elaborate, you know, all sorts of different interest groups with different agendas coming from different places. And it's, it's just a wonderful, if you love that kind of thing, it's just the most wonderful tangle ever. Um, And I won't untangle the whole kind of morass right, right here and now, but. Oh, come on. Go for it. Yeah, go for it. But anyways, he's got this, (laughs) (laughs) we're here, we're ready, but he, uh, he launches this multi-pronged effort to try to build his build his power power and really sort of diversify his means of support. Some of this involves an amazing prestige policy. He builds this beautiful hunting park. He builds these this great pavilion where he has royal audiences and and these um, amazing marches where his different soldiers from all sorts of different parts of the world will process before him and before the public. He builds these beautiful pleasure gardens. In 1253, he actually claims the Caliphate, which is pretty... Audacious. Audacious. That's the word I'm looking for. It's pretty audacious, pretty ambitious. And for a brief and beautiful, what must have been a beautiful moment for him in 1258, after the Mongols sack Baghdad and roll the last Abbasid caliph, caliph up in a carpet and mm-hmm. and trample him, right, in order to not to, to cut his body, which was very, very generous of them. I'm sure After, he appreciated the compliment. I'm sure he did. It was very, very nice. We're sort of respecting his, his person <laughs> like that. But in that brief moment after 1258, Mustansir is actually recognized as caliph in Mecca itself. So this is a wonderful pinnacle for him. It doesn't really, it doesn't really last, but he's a person who to survive really needs to have an outward looking policy. He's someone who really needs his control of the countryside, his control of the hinterland south of Tunisia is always fairly weak. There are these very powerful tribal interests, some Berber, some Bedouin that make it difficult for him to establish himself there. So for his money, for his tax income, he really needs to look outwards towards trade with the Mediterranean and especially with the Northern Mediterranean and especially with folks like Charles of Sicily. And so he's right there. And he's right there. And there's this basic dynamic at work there, which is really fascinating, which is that a Mustansir needs wheat imported into Tunisia. There's a really interesting digression there about the nature of Maghrebi agriculture, which is something to think about. Why do they need to import wheat in the 13th century? But it's clear that they do. And Sicily is still maintaining its position that it even had in the days of ancient Rome as a kind of breadbasket for the for the Mediterranean. So Charles has the wheat, but Almostensir has access to hard currency, 
gold from sub-Saharan trade. And Charles needs gold to pay off the massive war debts that he's run up trying to conquer Sicily. So we have this dynamic in play there. How is it going to work out? And what we see is that these two stories, one, the story of a kind of battle for Syria on the one hand, and on the other hand, this struggle for control of the central Mediterranean become intertwined in this marvelously complex way over 1267, 1268, 1269, into the Crusade in 1270. So this is a, a question you ask in your book, and quite early too, but I'm going to ask the first question that popped into my mind as someone who came to the book with almost no knowledge of the Tunis Crusade. Now, yeah. when I saw the title
money from almost dance here. They're always represented as being mutual, mutually exclusive, sort of an either or. You have to pick one. The point that I try to make in the book is that we don't actually need to choose. We can actually see that both brothers, Louis and Charles, could have their interests met by a crusade to to Tunis, that Tunis was in the unfortunate position of being able to to satisfy many of the of the the policy goals, whether those policy goals were super practical or whether they were rather ethereal, they could all be met by a crusade in Tunis. Both brothers found what they what they wanted there. Um, Louis, in particular, is someone who, by the time we get to the 1260s, he has this really strong sense of crusader piety. No question about it. But it's a sense of piety. It's a sense of interest in the crusades that's gradually becoming unmoored from the Holy Land, from Syria itself. He's actually got this broader, in a way more ambitious idea of wanting to Christianize Islamic space more more generally. And here, Tunis is really, really interesting to him because Louis gets the idea, he gets the notion that Al-Mustansir wanted to convert to Christianity, that he wanted to embrace the religion, and that in the wake of his own conversion, that he would lead his own people to the faith. And that then, here's this amazing thing, right? This idea that in the 13th century, North Africa, the land of Augustine, Italian, Cyprian, this land that had been so central to the story of Christianity in its earliest centuries, could become Christian again. This is this absolutely amazing idea for Louis and one that I think looms large in the story of the crusade. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we need to discount Charles's interests in going to Tunis. Charles really needs to stabilize relations on his southern border. He needs someone, he he needs a stable relationship with Tunis if he's going to fulfill his ambitions of creating this large trans-Mediterranean empire. He can't do it when the heartland of that empire, really sort of his back door, is, is under such serious threat. So they both have these strong reasons for going for going there, which is what puts it, puts this otherwise unlikely candidate for a crusade target in the crosshairs in 1270. Hmm. You know what, what strikes me? A couple of things strike me. One, the, the kind of wishful thinking of Louis, thinking that he's going to you know, has has this guy who's ready and willing to convert to Christianity if he can just show up there. It, it makes me think of the uh, rumors about Prester John, this yeah. kind of Christian king that was coming from the east that was actually, you know, kind of rumored to be with the, or leading the Mongols. Uh, turned out he wasn't there. It was not Prester John, just Chinggis Khan. That's but, right. Uh, That's right. That, that kind of wishful thinking seems to have been kind of endemic at that point. Obviously, that would have been a little earlier. Um it also strikes me kind of to, to bring this conversation full circle, how 
wonderfully each of the, the explanation that places the blame for the crusade on a blame or, or responsibility on one of these two brothers, uh, Louis or Charles, lines up so nicely with kind of the two different approaches, right? The the clash of civilizations, people have their poster boy in Louis Mm -hmm. and the Mediterranean studies, people have their, have their guy in Charles. And it's sort of, uh, it's sort of, I I like the way that you don't assign full responsibility to either, but just have this kind of more synthesized view. I think it is the kind of coming together, right? It's, it's really hard you when you look just to just to dive down into the the practicalities of it for for a second when you when you actually look at the build up the immediate months prior to the to the crusade you what looks more probable is that the brothers are actually acting in concert with each other rather than that one is manipulating the other or that in fact charles is manipulating manipulating Louis there are a number of, they they work in concert when one moves when Louis begins his march south when he when he makes it to Aigues Mort which is the port from which the crusade launches that's when we see Charles begin to make his move south crossing over it's an interesting thing right is that we think of Charles as king of Sicily Charles had actually never been to Sicily before he went over to cross for the Tunis Crusade. He is someone who had stuck on the mainland, stuck in Naples, had been further north. This is the first time crossing over the island. It's actually an island where there had been a lot of unrest, where the vestiges of the old regime had been fighting this long insurgency campaign against him. And he needs to kind of try to get this under control, even to get out of there to launch the crusade down to, down to Tunis. So we see them sort of working together. So that that suggests that one is not necessarily manipulating the other. And then there are just these real practical factors that make it hard for them to ponder launching the original plan. And it, there's an amazing difference between what Louis ends up doing, which is going to Tunis, and of course, and I hope this is not too bad a spoiler, but dying there, right, in August of 1270, we can edit that out later. Okay. <laughs> and versus what his his original plan for this crusade is incredibly ambitious. It's this wonderful demonstration of how global and how interconnected this Mediterranean world was in the 13th century in this age of relatively primitive means of communication. Louis is trying to put together this coalition of parties against Baybars, against the Mamluks. But included in this coalition are people as diverse as Prince Edward of England. So just draw yourself a mental map while I'm doing this. We've got Prince Edward of England. We've got King Jaume of Aragon. So think Barcelona, Catalonia. We've Mm -hmm. got the the Mongol Ilkhan. So think now Inner Asia. We've got the King of Armenia. We've got Genoa. Look at all these different groups and how they're carrying out diplomacy across thousands and thousands of miles. It's really quite an amazing thing. So that's the original scheme, right? Is that this huge coalition of forces is going to assemble against Baybars, right? And then, of course, Baybars being fully aware of this, how can I extract myself from this crisis? 
Well, one thing I can do, right, is I can negotiate with Louis's younger brother, right? I can negotiate with Charles and see if I can get him at least not to join this coalition, right? Or maybe even better to put pressure on his or apply some leverage on his on his older brother to get the crusade to go somewhere else. So we have these Charles not necessarily interested in the crusade going to Syria. And then we just have these real practical problems that emerges. I, it's sort of sad to say after looking at all this complex diplomacy and negotiation, what, what actually happens to turn the crusade to Tunis. A big part of it, I think, is that the Genoese fleet never shows up. They're super late, right? <laughs> They're supposed to come. It's, it's just, we're going back to this amazing moment. There's no French Navy. Right, mm-hmm. Louis wants to launch this enormous crusade. He has no boats. To, to get people where he wants them to go, he has to have boats leased or he has to have them built. And he pretty much needs to deal with the, the masters of maritime transportation in that era, which are these Italian city-states, the, the Venetians, the Genoese, the Pisans. Mm-hmm. He decides to deal with Genoa, contracts with them, they're going to build this enormous fleet, but of course it takes time and inevitable. Anyone who's done a home renovation project will know it's, it runs late and they don't show up when they're supposed to, they're supposed to, when they're supposed to, and they don't get to egg Mort until very late June, early July, 1270. And now there's the question, well, the sailing season across the Mediterranean is pretty brief. Do we actually have time? to launch this multi-pronged, super ambitious effort against Baybars? Or are we going to have to stop somewhere else first? Maybe we're going to have to go somewhere else first. Well, where can we go? Well, Tunis is kind of interesting because maybe the emir wants to convert. That would be amazing, right? Because that would then give us Sicily on the one side of the Mediterranean controlled by Charles, Louis's brother, and the other side would be this kind of Christian client kingdom. That is Syria's control over the choke point of the central Mediterranean. That has enormous strategic value. Even if Elmostanser doesn't want to convert, maybe then we try to conquer the city. At that point, we control Tunis, which will be beneficial for us. And Tunis is supposed to be rich. So we'll have this money that we can use for the next stage of the campaign. So it's close. It's enticing. It's appealing. Uh, There's money there. There are souls there. Let's do it. Yeah. And there's also this, there's the sort of the negative side of it is I don't think people in that crusade army and including Louis and including Charles were tremendously excited about a direct strike on Mamluk, Egypt. No, I mean, they had just, I mean, you know, they've just beaten the Mongols and that's got to give them some reputation. So, yeah, let's think about it for a second. First of all, being there, done that. They had gone to Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. Only 20 years before and had won an initial victory at Damietta and then had gotten absolutely wiped out. Traumatic defeat that they had suffered. And then you're absolutely right. 1260, this massively climactic battle in the 
in the Near East, where the Mamluks defeat the Mongols at the Battle of Ain Jalut, establishing a really formidable military reputation. There's a real idea out there, I think, circulating in the Crusader army that, you know, it might make sense if we tried something that was a little less direct. Mm-hmm. Let's so, target similar, similar kinds of benefits, but without all the risk. Yeah, let's target someone. El Mustansir does not have a reputation as a warrior. Mm-hmm. And the course of the crusade would would prove that reputation to be borne out, right? He's constantly criticized. He's someone who's going to make a deal to get out of this situation. He's constantly criticized in the in the Arabic sources for sitting in his tent, surrounded by his advisors, including, in fact, he had this amazing troop of Christian mercenaries as his bodyguard, surrounded by his advisors and not really wanting to leave the tent. He was not too enthusiastic about leading his armies in person against the Crusaders, right? So he doesn't have a reputation as a fighter. Maybe we can go to, maybe Tunis would be an easy target. That turned out to be a profound miscalculation, of course. Tunis was not an easy target at all. Well, we are running up against our time limit. This has been an absolutely fascinating discussion, and I'm sure our listeners will agree. Uh, Before we sign off, would you mind sharing with me and the listeners what you're working on now or taking a a well-deserved break after publishing a book like this? So I'm actually (laughs) – it's kind of funny to talk about what I'm doing now because I'm going in a rather different direction. Uh, I still have, some, of course, projects on the boil about the, I'm writing about the Crusader states for the Cambridge History of the Crusades that should be coming out sometime before the next millennium, if we're lucky. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I am working on that. And I, and I also work on, I just mentioned, incidentally, at the end about uh, almost answer having this uh, European Christian mercenary bodyguard. I'm really interested mm-hmm. in these European mercenaries who go down to fight in North Africa. And I have some projects on the boil. I've written a little bit about them as well. But what I'm really working on now, again, we were talking earlier in the hour about how teaching can really generate research. And for years here at Minnesota, I have taught this class about soccer, about the modern history of soccer. So this is not the Crusades at all. And I'm mm-hmm. actually interested, I've become fascinated by this soccer team that played in Vienna in the 1920s and 1930s. And it was an all-Jewish soccer team. It was kind of aggressively Zionist in its political orientation. And they played together because they were banned from joining other Austrian clubs. And they rose from the obscurity of the lower leagues to actually win the Austrian League in the mid-1920s. And then they toured around the world, including in the United States, in New York, in St. Louis, all sorts of other countries, including the Middle East, in fact, pictures of them in Egypt that are really amazing to look at over the years. And then, of course, they had to face the rise of anti-Semitism, Nazism, the Anschluss in 1938, and the challenge of World War II and the Holocaust. And that's the wow. story so that you're, I'm you're, working you're on right from, now. You're going from the Crusades, a topic which tends to generate a whole lot of passion, and yeah. taking a break from all the passion by talking about soccer, Zionism, and Nazism. 
Why do I do this to myself? Yes, that's exact. That's exactly what I mean. That's why. Exactly. I love it. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing right now. But of course, the Crusades are still there for me. And I know that I will be coming back to them too. And they're not, they're not going anywhere. No, they tend not to. That's for sure. (laughs) Well, Michael, thank you very much for coming into uh, onto the podcast and sharing your research with us. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. It was an absolute pleasure for me. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.